0: Good morning. Redeemed yourself? <laughs> yes. For those of you that aren't aware, we read from John chapter three last week, and there was some confusion. Um, but here we are in third John. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, how helpful those words we just sang are to our hearts and our minds that it is not about us. But the work of which we are able to do and accomplish is not our own, but it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, Father, may that reign supreme in our heads this morning as we turn to your word we seek help, we seek guidance and wisdom in how we live and how we act in the things that you have called us to. before we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the name Bill Romanowski may not mean anything to you. Uh, he's a former NFL player. He was a middle linebacker for The 49ers and the Eagles and the Broncos and the Raiders. He's a four time Super Bowl champion, great football player, amazing athlete, but a terrible teammate. He's number one on the list of dirtiest football players ever. He's been sued several times by other players. He's kicked uh, players in the head. Uh, he broke the jaw of uh, another player once. And, and football is a violent sport, and so sometimes being brutal is to your advantage. But that was not Romanowski's problem. Romanowski was a terrible teammate, He broke the eye socket of a teammate one time when he ripped the other player's helmet off and punched him in the eye so many times that that player was actually forced to retire from the sport. Many of his teammates have said that he was the worst teammate that they had ever had. So despite his unbelievable athleticism, his inability to be a good teammate caused great strife with the team romanowski's problem was not that he was just ultra competitive his problem was that he chose himself over others or over the team he put himself first and that is where we are with third john where we saw last week the apostle john is writing to this man Gaius, who is walking in the truth. His love has been reported to John, and John is encouraging him to to carry on because he needs to encourage him, not just because there are false teachers in and around the area, but actually there are bad teammates in the church. And they're making life difficult for people like Gaius, who are who are trying to walk in the truth with love. And so we read about them, as Charlotte has read helpfully for us, uh, in verse 9 of 3 John, where John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes... It couldn't have had a simpler name, anyway. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge Our authority. So here is a person in the church, possibly in a position of authority, or perhaps he just has a a, a tremendous amount of, of capital, a tremendous amount of sway with people, a tremendous amount of influence, and he ignores the authority of likely the last apostle. Uh, Around at this point in John. And John has authority as an apostle, as one who has witnessed the work of Christ, who has witnessed the resurrection of Christ. But Diotrephes does not submit to the authority that's over him, the authority that God has placed over him, but rather he puts himself in a position of authority. And John says, So if I come... I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is working against the mission of the church. He's refusing to submit to the authorities that God has put over the church. He, he speaks against the, the leadership of the church and not content with that, John says, as if that were not enough bad things for him to have in his list of his docket. He refuses to welcome these brothers that we're sending out, these missionaries of the gospel, these uh, itinerant preachers that are coming to, to help the people, to encourage the people, to uplift the people. And not only that, but he actually is, is putting people out of the church who want to help those men. People like Gaius that want to show love and hospitality to the visiting preacher. He's putting them out of the church. Diotrephes is a real piece of work. He, he is literally doing the exact opposite thing that he should be doing. He is the exact opposite of Gaius. Gaius is walking the truth in love and and showing great hospitality. The, The truth testifies to his putting what he believes into practice. He is the source of joy to the Apostle John. He is a fellow worker for the truth. Diotrephes, submits to his own authority. He's obviously a source of pain and frustration to the Apostle John. He deliberately keeps the gospel from being preached and, and, and the good news going out by good messengers, and then he threatens to harass anyone who tries to support those people. Why does Diotrephes act like this? Well, there are a number of theories... He didn't like the power structure that that John was ruling from far away. He thought that the that the local church should have autonomy and should be able to have their own preachers and not have to bring in these preachers from the outside. Or it was not that there was a doctrinal error, but there was rather a a personal ambition issue. And so Diotrephes has an issue with John personally and anyone that's associated with him. And so he puts out all of these visiting preachers that John is sending. Or there's another theory that Diotrephes, whose name means Zeus raised, was part of the Greek aristocratic class. And so this is a class issue. Well, we don't know, and we will never know. But what we do know is that to John, this is not, this issue with Diotrephes, it's not a theological issue, it's not a social issue, it's not an ecclesiastical, a church structure issue, but it is a moral issue. It is a moral issue. The root of the problem of all of this is sin. As he writes, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. What does Scripture say about this? Well, if you've been with us at 9 o'clock for any stretch of time, we've been going through Mark's Gospel, and we looked on the very first week at Mark chapter 10. And Jesus in Mark's Gospel after James and John have sort of jockeyed for power and, and, you know, they wanted to call down fire onto the Samaritan city that turned them away. And they said, uh, Lord, actually their mommy comes and says, Lord, can James and John be on your left and right hand, right? They're, they're jockeying for power. And Jesus says to the disciples after they find out that James and John and their mom are trying to get some sort of extra power And Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all." For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. What did Peter write to the church as it related to to shepherds and, and elders within the church? Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to those in your flock. You know, John himself has probably taught this lesson. Many times, he, he's probably preached a sermon on this. He's probably told the story of, you know, this is what Jesus said to me and my brother after we, were, we completely misunderstood the role of Christ and what he had come to do. We, we thought he was here to bring judgment on the Romans. We, we thought he was just going to cast out all the, all the bad folks and save the good folks, And he would probably have said, I I didn't understand what the gospel was. I I didn't know what the good news was. This is also probably not the first time that John has had to deal with this issue. We see this issue all the time. But you see, this issue causes more damage than other issues because it is a rejection of authority. Authority. It is a rejection of authority and it is a promotion of self. This is the very sin that captivated Adam and Eve in the garden. The the rejection of God as their ultimate authority and the promotion of self, the lifting up of self, the thinking more highly of self than they ought. In Diotrephes' case, He is stopping the preaching. He is stopping the spread of the gospel. And and it is usually the case that self-love is at the root of every church descent. What is this teaching us? What is this lesson teaching us? Because I think we can be quick to look and say, I know a lot of people that are like Diotrephes. And I am Gaius in this story. (laughs) I'm always the hero in my own story. This is where Disney always lets us down, isn't it? When in reality, my tendency may not be as outright and destructive as Diotrephes. But I still tend to see myself more in the right than in the wrong. My heart is always prone to bend in on itself. My willful desires often win out. It is not natural to be selfless and kind and hospitable of a person like Gaius. It is more natural to be self-focused like diatrophies, because I can sit here and I can read this passage and I can even find myself patting myself on the back for my own efforts at being loving and kind and hospitable. Good for you. You've done a very excellent job of that. But you see, we can even give, give of ourselves in a selfish way as if it is by our efforts that we curry favor with God or we gain favor with God. Lord, look at what I have done. As if it is our works that justify us before God. Why is that always our tendency? Ever since the garden, we always want to justify ourselves before God. But you see, that is never our situation. That is never our situation. That is not the gospel. It is the antithesis of the gospel. What justifies us before God is Christ. It has nothing to do what we have done, but rather what he has done for us on our behalf. Yet not I, but Christ in me. We do not... Save ourselves. We did not choose God. In his sovereignty, he set his electing love on his chosen people for while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. So, so any effort that we think contributes To this is folly. And when a person understands that it is not by the works of the law that we are justified, but by grace that we have been saved through faith. And none of this is any of our own doing. It is the gift of God. Again, not as a result of works so that no one can boast or put themselves first, But the works that we do were prepared for us, that we should walk in them. When a person understands that, then they understand the truth. So we can ask ourselves the question, what is it that separates Gaius from Diotrephes? They're clearly put in contrast to each other in this letter. What is it that separates the two? Is it just their actions? Well, yes, it's their actions, but it has to be deeper than that. It has to be more than just actions. One is walking in the truth, in love. The other is not. So what defines walking in the truth? Because we can use that phrase, but what does it mean? It's presented through actions, but it comes from much deeper. Look at what John says next. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Don't imitate Diotrephes, no matter how magnanimous his personality, no matter how forceful his arguments, no matter how persuasive his speech. We've seen this in churches lately, have we not? Big, forceful personalities, people who speak so well, but where is the fruit? And the fruit is not the size of the, of the attraction, the size of the crowd that gathers. It cannot be. False prophets gather a crowd, massive crowds, every single day. And I'm sure that Diotrephes had a big following. It, he obviously was big enough in, in, to which John has to write about him specifically and threaten to come and deal with it personally. So, numbers are not fruit. Then, what is the fruit? What is the fruit? The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Are they putting on display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control? This is the fruit. That is the fruit that is born from a life transformed by the gospel. And the fruit is only good when the roots are good. Fruit is only good when, when the roots are are good and they go deep and the, and the roots are deep in Christ, if the roots are in the knowledge of the character of God and if you are planted into good soil, planted deeply, if you understand that we are not justified by the works of the law but by grace, then self-love is unattractive to you. In your spirit, now obviously our flesh and our spirit, they they war with one another, but you know what is right. You, You don't have to be told. You may need to be reminded, but you don't need to be told because you know God, because you are from God, as the passage says, because you have been saved by grace through faith. And you know that that did not come from you. That is how Gaius is able to act in the way that he acts. This is how Gaius is walking in the truth. It's not superficial. He's not just putting on a show. He's not feigning hospitality to people. It comes from deep down where his confidence, where his trust is built on a foundation It comes from being rooted in the truth of the gospel in knowing that Christ has called us to walk in the truth, in love. So where are Diotrephes' roots? They don't appear to be in Christ and and his actions confirm that. Let me make a, a slight shift here and ask you Would you get more joy and satisfaction in seeing Diotrephes condemned, judged, cast out, or would you get that in seeing him restored? and you don't really know Diotrephes, you've you've heard about his character, but maybe supplement your own person who's done you great harm and put them in that Diotrephes position. Would you rather see that person corrected and then also seeing a change or would you prefer to see them what receive what they deserve. No opportunity for return, no opportunity for restoration, just as Diotrephes as treating those who support the missionaries who come and visit. I ask you that question based on the next person we are introduced to in this passage. Demetrius, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, Demetrius is probably the messenger who's bringing this letter to Gaius, now perhaps John is just saying we, we know Diotrephes has a lot of influence and, we, and so we want to protect Demetrius. I don't know why they both have to have a D name. That'll get you confused. But, but, but Diotrephes, who's putting people out of the church, he has a lot of influence and we need to protect those ones we're sending and, and, and make sure he isn't sent back empty-handed. We want to make sure that this letter comes safely and, we, and so we're vouching for him, and we, again, we want to make sure he's not turned away. That could be the case. Of course, that could be the case, and it, it may very well likely be the case that that's what's happening here. But it could be, and I'm saying could be, I'm not saying this is what it is, but I'm saying it could be that this is the Demetrius who caused the riot in Ephesus over Paul and his companions who converted most of Ephesus. We read about that in Acts chapter nineteen. There's a huge silver trade in the in the city of Ephesus because they make uh, little statues and shrines to the goddess Artemis. And when Paul comes to Ephesus and, and he preaches the gospel. There were so many converted that they they all gathered together and they took all their magic books and and religious writings that they had and they threw them into the fire. And because of that revolt, this man Demetrius caused a a backlash towards the gospel that had gone out. And, And they started this chant, Great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians. I've actually stood in that spot where two of Paul's companions were dragged into the amphitheater and and where a trial was held over them. Could it be that that's the same Demetrius who was later converted? John most likely sent Demetrius from Ephesus, so it could very well be the same person. And, and they needed the testimony of John to come alongside him because they would be saying, this is Demetrius who, who started that whole revolt. We can't trust him. I mean, this is like when Saul was converted to Paul and the church was like, whoa, we've heard his testimony. They needed to know that Demetrius was a changed man. Again, that's a, that's a possibility. There's a second possibility. It, it, well, a third possibility, really. And it could be that Demetrius was formerly known by a shortened version of his name, which is Demas. Demas was a a, a traveling companion of Paul. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament. But in Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Could Demas be this Demetrius? Could he have come to himself and and recognized the error of his ways? And now John sends him with words of acceptance to to the Christian community? Again, I don't know. Uh, Theologians write a lot about these different options. I mention them only because I think it's worth us considering what does restoration look like? When John comes and rebukes Diotrephes, what would you hope the results would be? Our hope is that Diotrephes would repent and would confess and would be restored to fellowship. Our hope is that he would see the wickedness of his ways and the fact that he is is preventing the gospel from going out. Our hope is that he would then, after a period of of confession and repentance, would then be restored to the community, restored to the fellowship, because we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. And if we are people who are walking in the truth, then that should be our hope as well. It may have gone like that. It may not have gone like that. But our hope is in the gospel and its transformative power in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And I would imagine Gaius would have been the first person to welcome Diotrephes into the fellowship, back into the fellowship Because Gaius understands the gospel. And he is walking in the truth. I have heard story after story of men and women who have struggled with all kinds of sins. Unfaithfulness, bitterness, unforgiveness. On and on and on. And the the church puts them under discipline. And at times, they're removed from membership, as Paul says, is the right thing to do in Corinthians. And some of those people just continue down that trajectory. And they've proved that they were never truly a part of a professing, confessing church. But some come back in humility. And some come back in repentance. Repentance and they are restored, and they are welcome back to the table of fellowship. And they are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with the people of God as we are going to celebrate in just a few moments. And and what beautiful stories those are, because we are called to be restoration people. We are called to be people of forgiveness. We are called to be people of patience, because that is what the Lord is with us. John concludes his short letter with this greeting in verse 13. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. Peace in a very tumultuous situation. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. A longing not just to write, but to, to be together face to face. There's something about physical communion with people, seeing facial expressions and not having to try and read in between the lines, uh, uh, being able to ask a clarifying question if there's a, a misunderstanding. We miss out on all of that when everything is digital. We miss out on walking out in the truth, in love, when things are impersonal. We miss out on peace when we are not with one another. Perhaps you felt this way when you were forced into separation. It was only a reminder that we are created as relational beings. We are created for relationships. And then this greeting, greet each individual by name, a a, a personal touch, a personal touch that conveys value to each individual. They are all created imagio Dei, they're all created in the image of God and they all have value and they all have purpose. Because the reality is that when when we preach and and, and we teach on these issues, we talk to a a gathering of of people. And so preachers have to preach in a wide sense. But when we speak face-to-face, in a personal way, it tends to have a deeper impact. John says he will come to confront Diotrephes in person, not in the letter, not via Demetrius, the, 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 uh, the messenger, he will personally come because he obviously is not responding to the, the original letter that was sent. It must require a personal, in-person meeting, confrontation. What a reminder as we are about to partake in the elements of bread and wine. A reminder of... The church in Corinth who was not walking in the truth and love, who were not being good teammates, but rather were being self-focused like diatrophies and they were treating people badly based on class status and based on heritage and based on too many reasons. And they were being unkind to one another, and they were being unloving to one another. And Paul has to remind them of what they have been called to when he writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, This cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you drink it in remembrance of me. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Father, we come and we partake in these elements of bread and wine and we remember what Christ has done for us. We're not here to make a show of who we are, to pat ourselves on the back, but to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that these elements remind us of the body that was torn on the cross, the blood that was poured out, the cup of wrath that Christ drank in order that we now today here in this place, this body, can be given the cup of fellowship. So Father, remind us of these truths. Remind us of what it is that we are to imitate that we imitate these things because we know you and we have seen you. And these things are true because of the gospel of Christ. And so, Lord, now as we partake of this meal together, we ask that you would strengthen us as your people to be people of the gospel. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.